Man, what a privilege to be known by the one true God. It really is like there's not words to describe the honor of knowing Christ and being known by him. And that really is our prayer for you guys each and every week. Like we don't just say those things. We don't, it's not just lip service. We beg and we plead with God to draw those of you in who don't have a relationship with him so that you can know the honor and the wonder of what it is to have a relationship with God, to have your life transformed. So we're praying and expecting that to continue to happen and to happen tonight through his word. Two locations, Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 7. I've never been much for academia. Just a personal confession tonight as we get started. It's not that I couldn't do it. I made good grades. I didn't have to struggle. I didn't have to scratch. I didn't have to fight my way through it. I could do academia, and I could do it pretty well. It's just that I never enjoyed it. The thought of papers and projects and discussion boards and exams and just, I couldn't stand it. And I want you all to know that every single year, it gives me such great joy when you guys come back to start a new school year in August, the reality that you're here and that I don't have to go to school with you. I do not envy you in one bit that you get to go and do all those things that I could never stand. There's a reason why I won't go back. Like, I went and got my master's degree. It was awful. I went through seminary to, to be able to do this job, and it was terrible I love studying, like, like the subject matter was good. Even if the subject matter is good, like I still just couldn't stand like the papers, the readings and the essays. I'm just like, oh, I can't stand that stuff. I know some of you probably really enjoy it. That's fine. That's awesome. More power to you. I'm just telling you, I couldn't stand it. But there were some subjects that I just naturally seemed to excel at. They came easy for me. And one of those in particular was English. Even more specifically within that subject was writing. For whatever reason, I've always had a natural proclivity for writing. That being said, don't come up to me after tonight and ask me to write your paper for you. Ask ChatGPT. You can take care of it. But I, I can remember my freshman year, at, you and I had a freshman comp class. And one of our first assignments was an essay assignment. And so our professor told us, you need to come in here tomorrow and be prepared to write either a narrative essay, a descriptive essay, an expository essay, a compare and contrast essay, an argumentative essay, or a persuasive essay. And you're not going to find out which one it is that you're going to be writing until you get here that day. It'll be on your desk. You'll flip the card over. It'll tell you which one that you're supposed to write. It'll have the topic on there. And then you write the essay. I ended up with a compare and contrast essay. Are you familiar with that? Does anybody have any idea what that is? Okay, some of you do. Compare and contrast essay. It analyzes two subjects by comparing them, contrasting them, or a combination of the two. I made a 99 on that paper. And she said that the only reason that she didn't give me a 100 was because she didn't feel like she could give a 100 to a freshman on their first ever college paper. I was like, I don't really know if you can do that or not, but it's a 99, I'll take it, we'll call it good. It always came natural for me, that side of academia. And I tell you all that to say that we're going to do some comparing and contrasting tonight. Two narratives of two accounts that involves Jesus interacting with people, both contain a similarity, 
but both have major contrasts to each other built around them. So Mark chapter 6, we find our first narrative in verse 1. God's Word says that he went away from there, talking about Jesus, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out amongst the village teaching. Now over to Luke chapter 7. Second narrative, starting in verse 1, God's word continues. After he had finished all of his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Turn to somebody next to you and tell them, tonight is going to be marvelous. This is going to be marvelous. I want to speak from the subject of two marvels. All throughout the Bible, we see people marveling at Jesus, marveling at his teachings, marveling at his miracles, marveling at the works that he performed, but only twice do we see Jesus being described in a state of marvel. We just saw both of those instances. And what's immediately striking to me is the thought of what could cause Jesus to marvel? How can Jesus encounter something that fills him with wonder? How can Jesus encounter something that fills him with astonishment? He's Jesus. I mean, we're talking about, talking about the one who was there at the dawn of creation as it's spoken into existence. We're talking about the one who was there when light burst forth and when stars and planets were hung in the sky and galaxies were formed and oceans were scooped out and when man was first given the breath of life. We're talking about the one whose dwelling was and is in eternal glory where he is ever praised and magnified, and yet here he is on the earth, and he's marveling? He's taken aback by something? What's the root of Jesus' marvel? Two narratives, comparative in that both have caused Jesus to marvel, but contrasting in their cause that has produced it. So I want to show you two marvels that Jesus had, 
And I believe that he still has today in our lives. The first one is this, the marvel of unbelief. In Mark chapter 6, this first instance where we encounter Jesus marveling, he's doing so in response to the unbelief of the people. But it's not just any people that are unbelieving of him. It's his own hometown. It's his blood kin and his relatives that are unbelieving in who Christ is, who he claims to be, and the things that he has claimed to come and do. And at the end of the narrative, we see that when all is said and done, Jesus takes a step back and he marveled because of their unbelief. So in Jesus' hometown, it was shocking to him that these people refused to believe in the truth of who he is in spite of all that he had taught them, in spite of all the things that they had seen take place by the work of his hands, they still chose to not believe in who he was. And it caused Jesus to marvel. It caused him to be filled with wonder. It caused him to be astonished, to look at these people and think, how can you still, you still don't believe? How? How can you not believe that I am who I say that I am? How can you not believe that, that out of all of God's miraculous plan, He sent me to be born here amongst you people in this specific town, in this obscure little nothing part of the world, and you still won't believe? This is astonishing. This is amazing. Your level of unbelief is, is filling me with a sense of wonder. There are some elements present that built up to this marvel moment that Jesus had, and I think they're worth taking note of. The marvel of unbelief. Look at this element. Unbelief, unbelief evicted Jesus. What you need to know is that this is a return trip to Nazareth for Jesus. It was indeed his hometown. As a matter of fact, verse 1 tells us that it says he went away from there and came to his hometown. This was indeed Jesus' hometown, but he had previously been rejected and removed by these people. And we got to go to Luke chapter 4 to see this, and I'm just going to take an excerpt of Scripture. You don't have to turn there, but it says that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up or where he had been raised, where he had been born. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. At this point in time, Jesus has grown up. Yes, he came to the earth as a baby, but let's be reminded that he grew up into a man. Jesus doesn't forever stay a little baby tucked away in the manger with no crib for a bed. He grew up, and he's starting his ministry, and he's starting it right there in his hometown. He's standing up, and he's teaching in the synagogue. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Can you hear the parallels? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Seraphath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed but only named in the Syrian. So Jesus is quoting some Israelite history talking about how they have always rejected the prophets that were sent to them. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, 
he went away. So when Jesus first initiated his ministry in his own hometown, these people became so enraged at the things that he was saying and the claims that he was making that they kicked him out of the synagogue, drove him to the edge of the cliff that the town was built on, trying to push him off of the edge, but because it wasn't the right time for him to die, he simply just walked right through him and moved on down the road and began ministering in all the other surrounding areas. Upon threat of death, these people evicted Jesus from his own home, kicked him out. They openly and boldly declared to him that they didn't want him in their lives. But here we are a year later, and Jesus has returned. What an act of grace. Aren't you thankful for a Savior who even when your life declared, I don't want you around, in grace he kept showing up? That's a good God. But in unbelief, these people said, Jesus, we don't want you. Get out. They evicted him. Their unbelief also insulted Jesus. So he began teaching again. Some familiar things began to show up in this narrative once more. The people, once again, they marveled. They were astonished at what Jesus was saying. Who is this guy? Where did he get such great wisdom? Where did he find such authority in his teaching? And how does he perform such miracles? How does he perform such mighty works? And then they sarcastically began to answer their own questions. If you go and look in verse 3, it says, Is not this the carpenter? So they've already said this once before. Is not this Joseph's son? But the insults get a little bit deeper this time. Is not this the carpenter? Is not this the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't those his sisters right over there? So they sarcastically begin to answer their own questions. And it's sarcastic in the sense of the titles that they're giving Jesus. Is this not just a carpenter? In other words, is this not, he's just a trade guy. He's just a commoner. He's, this is the same guy. This is the same guy that we saw running around in Joseph's shop for 30 years. We watched him grow up. He's just like any one of us. There's, there's nothing special about him. This guy's just average. He's like the rest of us. So why is he doing such great things? Why is he making such great claims? And on top of that, they even took a shot at his family. They said, is not this the son of Mary? See, back in those times, it wasn't culturally acceptable to say that somebody was the son of their mother. You said that they were the son of their father. And so where this is a dig at is that these people are basically making the assertion that is Jesus not even possibly illegitimate? I know the rumors that circled around town when Mary all of a sudden got pregnant out of wedlock. And as Jesus is in his hometown, these people are beginning to take a shot at his personal character. Is, it not this, is, this, is this guy like it? Is he not even an illegitimate child? The son of Mary? We don't know who his dad is. Aren't those his siblings? And he just like one of us? And the text tells us, I think it's crazy to see how the text lays this out. It says that they took offense at him. You think people still don't get offended at Jesus today? They took offense at him and they began insulting him because once offended, we seek to offend. Offended people will offend people. 
In other words, they thought that they knew Jesus. Come on, we watched this guy grow up his whole life. The most spectacular thing we ever saw him do around here was build a rocking chair. Who is this guy? Why does he think he's somebody? Why can he come in here with such authority? Why can he call us out and say that we need to repent, and that we have sin, that we reject prophets? Like, where does he get the gall to come in here and say these things? And he's nothing special. So they began insulting him all over again. Offended people say offensive things. These people, in their unbelief, they not only evicted Jesus the first time that he came around, they insulted him the second time that he came around. And then in their unbelief, it led to this next element where it prevented them from seeing miracles. Their unbelief prevented miracles. So if you go back and look in verse 5 of the text, it says that after they finished all their insults, Jesus takes it all in. And verse 5 just gives us this tidbit of information. It says that he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. Verse 5 brings a lot a chilling reality of what unbelief does. Unbelief limits and even prevents in ways God's movements and miracles in our lives. There was so much that Jesus wanted to do among those people. There were so many mighty works. There were so many great things that he wanted to do amongst them. Works of healing, works of restoration, works of transforming souls, changing destinies, the revival of a city and a region, but it all never happened because of the unbelief of these people. As a matter of fact, verse 5 says that all they got was just the healings of a few sick people. And the way in which it's written leads us kind of hanging on the edge like there was so much more that he wanted to do. But because of their unbelief, he could do no mighty works amongst that place. All they got was a healing for a few people, and when it was all said and done, Jesus took a step back and looked at their unbelief, and he marveled over it. He was astonished by the level of unbelief that he found present in that place. First marvel. Second marvel is the marvel of faith. Compare, contrast. In Luke 7, in this instance, we once again encounter Jesus in a moment of marvel. But this time, it's been brought about in response to a demonstration of faith. This Roman centurion has reached out to Jesus for help on behalf of his sick servant. And just like there were elements present that built up to Jesus marveling over the unbelief of the people in his hometown. There are elements present here that built up to his marveling over the faith of this Roman centurion. So I want you to watch the contrast. Faith invited Jesus. So where unbelief evicted and told Jesus that we don't want you here anymore, faith actually invited him in. So in Luke chapter 7 and verse 3, The text tells us that when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and to heal his servants. This man had heard about Jesus. He had heard about the things that he had done. He had heard about the way that he had healed other people in different towns. And when he heard that Jesus was around his area, he sent people to ask him if they would come to his house on behalf of his sick servants. So already this man's faith is on display Because he believes Jesus can help 
and heal his servant. It's the whole essence of him reaching out to ask for help to begin with is because deep down inside, he already believes that this man truly can do something about this situation and circumstance that nobody else seems to be able to help. That's what faith does. Faith invites and welcomes the presence of Jesus. It pleads with him to enter into the place or the situation or the circumstance that we find ourselves helpless and hopeless in. And it's not satisfied with any other result other than him showing up. Faith invites the presence of Jesus into its life. It's the exact opposite of unbelief. Unbelief says, Jesus, I don't want you here. You're not welcome here. Go anywhere else other than here. Faith says, Jesus, I need you here. I want you here. I have to have you here. Faith invited Jesus. But his faith also honored Jesus. Where unbelief insulted Jesus, this man's faith honored Jesus. If you go back to the text and look in verse 4, it says that when they came to Jesus, so these, these people that this Roman centurion had sent on behalf they were actually Jews, the very people that were rejecting Jesus, like in his hometown. And here's a Roman, here's a Gentile. He has no idea about prophecy. He has no idea what it is that Jesus has come to do and how he has come to make a way for all people to come to know salvation in him. And yet he's demonstrating more faith in the very people that God came to to begin with. And so he sends these people on his behalf saying, go and ask Jesus if he'll come here. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So they're telling Jesus, Jesus, this guy, he's not one of us. He's not a Jew. He's a Roman. But you really need to come and do this because he's a good guy. Like he, he has helped us. He has not oppressed us. He, he's, he's given his consent on the construction of the synagogue. He's watched over us. He's made sure that we were treated fairly. So you really need to come and do this for this guy because he's done a lot to favor us. And Jesus went with him, not on the reasons that they were basing it off of. Jesus went with him, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. What did the Jews say of this guy? He's worthy to have you come and do this for him. Yet before Jesus ever gets there, he sends the messengers back, and he says, you tell them I'm not worthy to have him come to my house. I don't deserve this. He said, I didn't even presume to come to you myself. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he doesn't. This man so honored Jesus, this man so respected and so recognized his lordship that before Jesus ever even got to his home, he sent messengers telling him, I'm not worthy to have you come here. In other words, Jesus, I'm not worthy of you. I don't deserve your presence. In my house, I don't deserve your presence. In my life, I appreciate the fact that you've come this far. But don't trouble yourself with coming any further. I'm not worth your time. I'm not worth your effort. I'm not worth your energy. Just in faith, his faith continues to pour out. Just in faith, just say the word from where you're at. And I believe that even that can heal my servant. In unbelief, 
the other people took offense at Jesus. They mocked, they degraded, they scoffed, they made fun of. But in faith, this man said, I wouldn't even presume to walk up to you because of who you are and because of who I know myself to be. That's honoring the holiness of God. That's understanding how great and how awesome and how mighty he is and how wretched we are in our filth and in our sin apart from his righteousness that we can't just go flippantly, la-di-die, skipping up, hey, Jesus, you want to come to my house and heal my servant? I'm worthy to have you do it. This man understood this is the holiness of God. And he says, I'm not worthy, but please, if you were to speak the word, I know my servant will be healed. He understood authority. As a matter of fact, he gave an example of it. He says, I have authority that's been given to me, and I understand how much my servants consider my word when it's spoken. They don't question. They just do it. And if I have that kind of authority as a little nothing Roman centurion, then how much greater is your authority as the Son of God? That's honor. That's honor. That's putting Jesus in his right position. That's giving Jesus right priority. That's what faith does. It honors Jesus. It understands who we are in light of who he is, and it bows before him and says, I'm not worthy. But if you'll still help, I would love for you to do so. If you'll still look past my filth, if you'll still look past my, my shame, if you'll still cover my unrighteousness, I'll gladly receive it. This man honored Jesus. Faith invited Jesus. It honored Jesus. And because of faith, they saw miracles. Where unbelief prevented and limited the mighty works of Jesus, faith saw mighty works of Jesus. This man's faith marveled Christ, and as a result, his servant was healed. But beyond that, it opened up the door for other mighty works to be done by him. If you were to look back in the text, you get down to verse 11. We stopped in verse 10. But if you read just the first two words in verse 11, it says, Soon afterwards, soon afterwards, what he did was he went to the next town and he encountered a funeral of a woman who had just lost her only son, and he raises the son back to life. So not only did this man's faith open up the door for a miracle to take place in his life, it opened up the door for God to do an even greater ministry in the surrounding area. Soon afterwards, he went to the next town over, did something miraculous, raised a dead man back to life. And if you were to get to the end of that narrative, you would see that word about Jesus spread throughout the entire region. Mark 6, the unbelief of God's people only got a few sick people healed. The faith of a centurion led to them seeing healing of his servant, the raising to life of a young man, and a whole region ignited by God's movements and workings. And once again, Jesus stepped back, looked at this man, and marveled at his faith. Faith marveled Jesus. He was like, wow, look at this guy. He turned around and tells the disciples, hey, guys, you see this? Remember where we just left, Nazareth? That was a circus, wasn't it? Look at this guy. He's not even a Jew. 
He's a Roman. You see his faith? Wow! This is astonishing. This is this is this is filled me with a sense of wonder. I, I can't, I've never I never thought I would see something like this amongst someone like him. This is a moment of marvel for he looked at him and he marveled over the faith that he had. Two marvels. Two. I believe Jesus still looks at us and marvels today. The question is, which one is the source of his marvel in our lives? Is it faith or is it unbelief? As Jesus looks down upon each and every individual soul in this room tonight, mine included, what does he marvel at? Does he marvel at our faith in him? Or does he marvel at our unbelief? Because here's my fear, guys. I fear too often he marvels for the wrong reasons. I feel that far too often that like his own people, he sees others today that know all about him. Maybe they were raised in a godly home. Maybe they've heard prayers. Maybe they've even seen them answered. I think he looks down today and he sees people that have sat under great biblical teaching. And week in and week out, they've heard of his grace, they've heard of his love, they've heard of his mercy, they've heard of his forgiveness. I think he looks down and he sees people who week in and week out have seen and are aware of his provision and his protection over their lives, and yet they still want nothing to do with them. And I think he marvels at our unbelief at times. I think he steps back and he's like, you still don't believe. How? How can you not still believe? How can you not see and acknowledge all the things that I've brought about in your life? How can you hear my voice day in and day out and still resist and still reject? How can you be, how can you be so familiar and yet so doubtful? Let me give you a warning. Nazareth, Nazareth is a warning. It's a warning that familiarity breeds unbelief. That we can get so familiar with Christ, but never actually know Christ. For the unbelieving soul. Now, I think there's an unbelief that exists amongst the church as well. Amongst those of us who are believers, there are times when we still have unbelief also. There are times, whether we want to admit it or not, that we still want nothing to do with Jesus. There are areas of our life that we say that are off limits. There are things that we still want to control. There are things that we still want to want to keep underneath our command and our rule. There are times when we still look at Jesus and we say, I may have declared you Lord over my life, but I don't want you right here. I don't want you in these places. I don't want you making these decisions. I want to handle these things myself. We're just as guilty at times saying we don't want your presence here. We're just as guilty at times of denying and doubting who he really is and what he can really do. We've got mountains. We've got strongholds. We've got things that we're uncertain about. And we say that we trust God. We say that we're a people of faith. And yet at night we can't sleep. We toss and we turn. We worry and we stress. We're on medication. We're taking pills. We're doing anything that we can to numb the uncertainty and the anxiety and the stress. But we believe in faith. Our unbelief, though, is overruling that faith 
And here's the thing, here's the danger of it. With our unbelief, we begin to hinder and we begin to quench and we begin to stifle the movements and the mighty works of God. That's why there's no place for unbelief. There's going to be doubt sometimes. He's never condemned doubts. Thomas doubted. He didn't condemn him. He put him off to the side and gave him, gave him some encouragement, gave him some confidence. But unbelief, he said, that does not belong amongst my people. When you're full of unbelief, you quench my work. You stifle my movements. You hinder my mighty works that he desires to do among us. And sure, we get to see a glimpse of things every now and then. We get, we get like the people in Nazareth. We get a few healings. But Jesus stands ready to do so much more. If, if my church would believe, if they would get rid of the unbelief, there are so many more things. There are so many great works. There are so many mighty things that I want to unleash. There are so many healings I want to bring in their life. There are so many restorations from past pains that I want to bring. There's the revival of a city, a region, a school, a campus, a family, a dorm room that I want to pour out. Just, just believe, have faith. Instead, he marvels. I can't believe they just won't let me. I can't believe that they still don't believe. Unbelief. Or, or, good news is there's two. Will he marvel at our faith? This is what I'm calling us to tonight. I want him to look down upon our lives and see a faith that invites him, that pleads with him to come and enter into our lives, filling all the places of our hearts with his presence. I pray that he would look down and see a faith amongst us that would honor and recognize his lordship, knowing that he holds all authority and that there is nothing impossible for him to do. I want him to look down and see a, a faith that that says we want to see the miracles, we want to see the mighty works, we want to see the dead and lost souls be brought to life. We want to see things that we never even imagined or thought could take place. We want to see you, God, revive our city. We want to see you revive our campus. We want to see you revive our region. We want to see you revive our nation. We want to see you revive this world. Will he look down and will he see a faith amongst us that leaves behind comfort and preference, that leaves behind selfish ambition and desires in order to pursue his calling and his plans and his purposes, a faith that trusts and calls out to him in the midst of suffering and difficulty and a humility that comes to him, defying all odds of whatever generational raising that lacked faith that you grew up in that says, I'm still going to come. I'm still going to believe. I'm still going to trust. I think if God would look down upon his church and see that kind of faith, he'd go, wow. That's what I've been looking for. I've been looking for a group. I've been looking for a church. I've been looking for a body who would say, you know what? I forsake everything to follow you. I think Jesus marvels over those things when he sees them in our lives. When he sees college students say, you know what? I'm not going to live for this world. I don't care about fortune or fame or status. I'm not going to pursue a career just because it has some kind of notoriety. I'm going to lay my life down on the altar before Christ and say, wherever you lead, I'll go. For any one of you guys to do that in this modern day is a marvel in a world that tells you to do you and get yours. I want Jesus to look down upon this faith and see us laid down before him saying we're not worthy, but if you will, take us up and use us. We'd love be your instruments of righteousness. I want heaven to look down upon onto a Baptist tonight and see you young men and women and go, wow, look at that. A generation on the rise. Maybe the last one to see a revival and an awakening sweep across the globe.
Will he look down tonight and say, Whoa. It's our choice. Two marvels. Unbelief. Faith. 